0: Our scripture this morning is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses one to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. May God bless the reading of and the hearing of this word. Morning.
1: How many of you have your Christmas trees up? Oh, wait, that was last week. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong question. Um, who knows what tomorrow is? Monday? Monday. St. Nicholas Day. St. Nicholas Day. Who's St. Nicholas? <laughs> <laughs> no, I am absolutely not making something up. Anybody know who St. Nicholas is besides Pastor John? Yeah, St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Myra in Turkey. He was born in 270 AD and he died on December 6, 343 AD. Now why would we be talking about the Bishop of Myra from Turkey from so long ago? Well, when he was a little boy, he was a very generous little boy. He was known to share his food with anybody in need As he grew up, he continued to be a very generous person. And he became a bishop at a very young age. They called him the boy bishop. um, But he was always taking care of the people in his congregation, always making sure they had whatever they needed. At one point, he came across a very poor family that had three daughters. Not a good thing to be a very poor family and have three daughters. They couldn't even feed the family. And that was when you had to pay a dowry to get married. And they weren't going to be able to marry off these three daughters because they couldn't do that. So they were going to have to sell these girls into slavery. That's what happened in poor families. If you couldn't feed your family, you sold your kids off. Not a good thing. Well, Saint Nick, Nicholas of Myra, heard about these girls and decided to do something. But he was not the kind that would just kind of be showy about everything. So one night, he went to the house after everybody was asleep, and he climbed wow. up on the roof, click, 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 and down through the chimney came three bags of gold. They just happened to have landed in something that the girls had hung up there that morning to dry. It was traditional to hang your stockings by the fire and put your shoes by the fire to dry. So when the girls hung their stockings up there before they went to bed so they would be dry in the morning, when the bags of gold came down the chimney, they happened to land in the stockings. When they woke up and found these bags of gold, they knew that they had freedom, that they would not have to be paid. So. When you hang your stockings up tonight to see if St. Nicholas will drop something into yours, you can remember that we have the best freedom because Jesus bought our freedom. He paid the price with his blood, not with a bag of gold. And he didn't have to drop it into our stockings. He just gave it to us. Pretty impressive, huh? Nicholas had the right idea, but Jesus did it even better. Let's Dear Lord, we thank you for generous people like Nicholas of Myra, St. Nick. We thank you for people that are generous today with gifts of cloth and time and uh, necessary articles that people need and money. We thank you that people are generous with smiles and hand-held along the way. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the freedom he has given us by his death on the cross. It seems strange to talk about that at this time of year when he hasn't even come as a baby in our church calendar, but we know he came for a reason. He came to serve, he came to die, he came to give us freedom. So as we think about Nicholas of Myra, help us to remember to be generous because we have been the recipients of the most generous gift ever. In Jesus'
2: name we pray. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word and for this time of year, for the anticipation that it brings. We pray that we will continue to um, celebrate and also to anticipate your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. As we know, Advent is a time of preparation. I'm curious how, what are some ways that you guys prepare for Christmas? What are some things that you do? What's that? Put up a manger scene? Yep. Christmas cards. Christmas lights. Christmas tree. What's that? Reeves, yeah. Pam came in here this week, last week, last week, I guess. Made this beautiful uh, preparation here. What is, what exactly are we preparing for though when we do that? Well, we're remembering the birth of the Redeemer, but like, (laughs) what? okay, Yeah, there's a lot of preparations for other people to be there. Um, Any other things that we're kind of anticipating looking forward to? Well, what's that? Yeah, that's coming after Christmas. (laughs) Yes, right. a lot of us kind of Maybe overtly or maybe more secretly look forward to the presents under the tree. Um, In any case, Christmas is kind of a lot of work, right? Yeah, it it takes a lot to put it together. I can't remember if I have used this illustration here or not because I have thought about using it a bunch of times, and I can't remember if I actually did. But my grandma grocer, my dad's mom, um, was kind of the quintessentials, The quintessential 50s housewife. She my memory of her is like all of her house was decorated in or furnished with what we now call mid-century modern furniture but at the time it was just furniture Um, and she always looked totally put together even when she was in her bathrobe and slippers she looked put together and she loved to host people and have this nice Spread and everything just looked great before. When when we moved from Honduras to the United States again, uh, my brother and I were pretty young, and I remember my mom giving us these kind of like etiquette courses unofficially before we could go visit Grandma Grocer because she was the proper grandma, and we didn't want to mess things up. She's actually super sweet, but um, but anyway, she used to have this dream this recurring dream that for her was probably a recurring nightmare that the president of the United States, whoever it was at the time, was coming to visit and she had to get her house ready and get it all put together and she was super anxious about it and we grew up hearing about this. That's maybe even more stressful for somebody like my grandmother at least than preparing for Christmas but I think Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 really caps the overhaul, preparation, um, the description. It's kind of like it's describing terraforming. You guys know what terraforming is? Paul, science fiction guru, want to explain it? That's great. Yes. So terraforming happens in science fiction stories a lot. It's it's like Paul gave an example. If you turned Mars into an inhabitable place, you're taking some place that's uninhabitable or inhospitable and making it habitable. And this is kind of what Isaiah 40 is describing. You're clearing the wilderness and you're shaking out the highway, like some sheets and you're lifting up the valleys and you're jumping down the mountains and you're sanding out the rough places and, and, it says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Jesus relates that passage to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, even before Jesus, said, repent for the kingdom of, heavens, of the heavens is here. And he was, Jesus said he was the one who is described here who is preparing the way of the Lord so that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. He is trying to make hearts ready to be transformed like the landscape in this description. The four Sundays of Advent, as you know, have different themes um, and they each have variations on a theme, so the most common ones are hope, peace, uh, joy and love, but there are also some other themes that go with them. So today's theme is peace, but it also could be preparation, like in the Advent reading that Kathleen read for us. It could be John the Baptist, and it could be Bethlehem. It's John the Baptist Sunday. It's Bethlehem Sunday. It's Peace Sunday. It's Preparation Sunday. All of those things are optional themes for today. Well, you know me. I like to pull things everything together. So, so we're going to try to do that. We have talked about all of these things before here in different contexts, except for Bethlehem. But let's start with peace. Because we have talked about it here before, and my friend Donna Marie preached about it once this year. We've mentioned it in other Advent series. we talked about it with the fruit of the Spirit. Does anybody remember what, any of the things that we've said about peace? What is peace in the Bible? What characterizes it? Well, so it is an expression of love, yep. Shalom, thank you. (laughs) I thought Sandy was gonna give us that one. (laughs) Um, What is unique about shalom? How would you describe shalom? Calm, it's kind what's that? Wholeness yes and kathleen it's, this is your sunday kathleen kathleen is another theme for just kidding. um so yeah the bible's idea of peace is more than just everything feels calm and everything's okay and i'm i'm you know i'm not feeling anxious or whatever it is it includes that but it's more than that it's wholeness it's well-being everything is good like the bible describes the creation at the beginning in Genesis 1. Everything is good, whole, working together the way it's supposed to work. Um, how many people have experienced that recently? <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard to come by in this world in these days and we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 9, which was the passage Barb preached from last week, um, She preached about hope, but further on in that passage is the famous lines, He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. We talked for most of this year through the Gospel of Matthew about how Jesus is the king. He came to earth to establish his kingdom here, and in a way, it's already here, but... Also in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this kind of challenging passage where Jesus says in chapter 10, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Is Jesus contradicting Isaiah? I mean, on, on surface, it might look like he is. Um, he's expanding on it? Oh, expand on that. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah. I think it sounds like what you're saying is there's more underlying, I mean, Isaiah says he'll be called Prince of Peace. That really doesn't tell us a whole lot, right? It's a title. Um, and so it sounds like you're saying there are some layers in how this is going to play out that don't automatically come to mind. And I think you're right. Um, there's a sense in which peace only comes of big overhaul, maybe kind of like straightening out the highway and lowering the hills and lifting up the valleys. It doesn't just happen. Not the kind of shalom peace that the Bible talks about. And interestingly, I never knew this before. I just discovered some things about Bethlehem this week, uh, or I, I never made these connections before. Bethlehem kind of gives us a hint what this is about. So just as far as you know, what's the significance of Bethlehem in the Bible? Why is it important? birth of Jesus. Anything else? (laughs) They didn't have enough hotels, right? Well, right. Bethlehem means house of bread, which is significant. There's someone else famous who was born there. Thank you, David. So it's Jesus' birthplace. It's David, King David's birthplace and actually where he grew up, his hometown. It's also associated with Rachel. You guys know who Rachel is? Jacob and Esau were twin brothers and Jacob married actually four women, but kind of officially two women, who were sisters, Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the favorite one. She did not have as many children as Leah, but her children, along with Leah's, were all the heads of the tribes of Israel, uh, the people of God. And she, not only did she have fewer children, but she also died younger. She died in childbirth with her second son. And she was buried at Ramah, which is near Bethlehem. And they're associated in some of the Old Testament prophecies. So when we talk about Rachel and Leah, we're thinking about two sisters who feuded with each other for the attention of their husband. Their husband feuded with his twin brother over the birthright, the inheritance from God and the land. In Jeremiah 31, 15, it says, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This passage is sort of imagining the matriarch Rachel grieving over the captivity and the exile of her children. She was one of the ancestors of the tribes of Israel. Jeremiah was written during the time that the people were going into exile. They were being taken over by the Babylonians and being taken away. and. So this is a a poetic picture of the grief that's happening in this and the the strife King David from Bethlehem raped another man's wife had the man murdered and had family problems ever after and he also was called by God, a man of war in first Chronicles. 23, it's 28-3, David says to his son Solomon, as David is getting ready to die, and um, Solomon is going to take the throne, David says, God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name, because you are a man of war who has spilled blood. So there's, we sing a little town of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was a little town, it was sort of insignificant, but there is a lot going on, it's a... It's almost a symbol and the seat of family problems among the people of God and among the surrounding peoples. And actually, if we think about it, Jesus was born there. Probably his other brothers and sisters were not born there, but Jesus himself had family problems. His brothers and sisters didn't believe in him until after he resurrected from the dead. In, so. Bethlehem is the site of family problems among the people of God, but it is also the site of the solution. In Micah 5, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 5, it says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace when the assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses i think there's something for us in this combination of passages in this time we're aware that there's a lot of strife in the world and there's actually a lot of strife a lot of strife among the people of god and i think this combination of passages in the light of the fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace who will be our peace who wants the, his, the rest of his brothers to return Jesus wants his family united and when Jesus shows up in a situation at first it feels like there's a sword at first all of the secrets and compromises and jealousies and things that get in the way in families, but also in the people of God, become exposed. And those things need to be challenged. And that doesn't feel good. And it's a lot of work. And it is like terraforming a planet. Because those things get stuck in our patterns of behaving and they stuck in our minds. But what God intends is For us to work through all of those things so that we can be one people so that we can bring God's light to the world This verse but you Bethlehem Ephrathah though you are small among the clans of Judah out of you will come for me One who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old from ancient times This is the verse that the scribes read the Herod when the Magi came and said, where's the one that's born to be king of the Jews? And Herod said, who? Yeah, where is that guy supposed to be born? Um, And this is the verse that the scribes quoted. Jesus origins are from of old. Jesus has been behind the scenes here this whole time. And the verse that says, therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, who came to bring not peace, but a sword via the little town of Bethlehem. It's a symbol of both the insignificance that it appears the family of God has, and of the family strife among the people of God, but how God wants to bring all the brothers and sisters together in this one from Bethlehem and in Matthew chapter 5 Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God these are the brothers that return when we return to Jesus Christ we join him as fellow peacemakers we are his brothers and sisters bringing unity within the family we have the option to wage war or wage peace. When, and war happens, war's been happening, it's, there's strife now, but there's always been strife in human history. When the rules imposed by authority that we don't love or trust break down, war is the result. War is violent, it is destructive, it fuels hate and division. And usually in a war, somebody is strategizing, but most of the people on the ground are just following orders, which means that nothing in the system of the world is really changing at all. You'll end up with another set of authorities that somebody doesn't trust or that is really not trustworthy. And then there's another war eventually. And it just keeps going and keeps going This is a dynamic that we know. This is an expression of, as we've been talking about in the Gospel of Matthew, of empire. Even among the people of God, this is the dynamic we know. This is how the world works. So, waging peace is really hard because it's not the same as war. It doesn't use the same tactics as war. It's a lot more work than war. Because we are trying to change things. We're trying to terraform this world for the kingdom. It doesn't always feel peaceful in the process. It's a lot of work. This week, yesterday actually, Saturday is my house cleaning day, and sometimes I have more time than others, and our house gets really dirty because we burn wood and we have a hairy dog. And also, you might notice that I have kind of a lot of hair, and so. Yesterday was the day I had to take the tub and the sink apart to clear the drains, it was gross. I sort of feel like there's something about that that's, that making peace is like, it is a lot of work. Sometimes it's a little gross. It's like cleaning the tub custard out of the drain. Making peace can be a lot of pain, like naming and working together through family drama or even family trauma. Making peace can feel kind of destructive. Like the Israelites entering the promised land. I'm doing it sort of, this sounds crazy, but a sort of impromptu Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy for a new Christian and a rededicated Christian. And that might not seem to make sense, but the book of Deuteronomy is a summary of God taking people from slavery to another people group, but also to a set of other spiritual entities into freedom and the kingdom of God. And there's something that's destructive that happens in the book of Deuteronomy, Exodus through Deuteronomy, where the people have to, there's plagues that get them out of Egypt, and then they have to fight to get into the promised land. And sometimes that's what making peace feels like. But really, Making peace is declaring the name of the Lord in the wilderness, populating the deserts of our lives with God's name and God's praise. Making peace is shaking out the highways and lifting up the valleys and tamping down the mountains and sanding out the rough places, all to make way for the Prince of Peace to travel through our lives into the lives of others. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord.